Good morning. So we're continuing on this morning with our mini-series. I'm not sure you can call a two-part sermon a mini-series, but uh, that's what we're calling it. It's called The Word. And in this two-part series, we're looking at basically four attributes or characteristics of Scripture. Carl Carr started it out last week with part one, and he talked about the um, two characteristics or attributes of Scripture that we call uh, inspiration and inerrancy. Inspiration comes from the fact that the Bible is inspired by God or breathed out by God. The key text for that, of course, is in 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all Scripture is breathed out by God. The idea being that God breathed out the words of Scripture into the human authors. The human authors wrote it down. And therefore, what we have in Scripture, what we have in our Bibles today, is the actual words of God. Not verbatim, because the authors were able to use their own personality, their own writing styles in many cases. But everything that's in our Bible is God's words. The second thing we talked about last week was inerrancy. Inerrancy means that Scripture is without error. It's factually correct in all places. Uh, it doesn't have any mistakes or inaccuracies in it. And that follows naturally from the, the idea that if the Bible is the Word of God, and if God is a perfect God and He doesn't lie, and He doesn't make mistakes, then His Word is inerrant. And so that was uh, last week. Today, in part two, what we want to do is we want to cover two other attributes of Scripture, and those are authority and sufficiency. Now, I want to give you a little roadmap to where I'm going today. My concern this morning was that maybe this is a little too technical. We're diving in a little deep, and I don't want you to get lost. I want you to follow me the whole way, if you will. So I'm going to tell you where I'm going, and then if you're halfway there, maybe you can remember and find your way back. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to explain that Scripture has authority. And I will define what that means, and then I will show it in two ways. One, I'll show it with logic. And secondly, I'll show you where it is in the Scriptures. Then we'll talk about sufficiency. And I'll explain that Scripture is sufficient. First, I will describe what we mean by that. And then I'll show you where it is in the Bible. And then I will tell you why it's a useful attribute of Scripture, why it's valuable. Thirdly, I'm going to bring it all back together. I'm going to bring it all back, the uh, inspiration of Scripture, inerrancy of Scripture, authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture, and then tell you why it is we spent two weeks going through this. And then lastly, I'm going to give you a gift. Most of you, or many of you, will think that this gift I'm going to give you is a challenge, but you're just going to have to trust me, it's a gift. Okay? So that's where we're going. If you get lost, I'm sorry. I've given you the roadmap. First, we believe that Scripture has authority. Now, what do we mean by Scripture has authority? Scripture has authority means that all the words in Scripture have the power to command and control our thoughts, our opinions, and our actions. Authority of Scripture means that the words of Scripture have the ability to command, have the power to command and compel what we think the opinions that we have, and how we act. Now, the idea of authority is a common one. We, we see it all over the place. If you're a child living at home, parents have authority over the child, and the parents have the power 
to command and control how the child acts. Sometimes as a parent, you might not feel you have that power, but you do. It comes with authority. If you have a job and you're at work and you're an employee, you are under the authority of your supervisor. Your supervisor has the ability and the power to command and control your actions. Similarly, the U.S. Justice Department has authority over all U.S. citizens, and it has the power to control and compel how we act. So we see it everywhere in our society. The, the idea that the Bible itself is, has authority should, however, be self-evident. In other words, it should follow pretty logically from what we've already talked about. So what I want to do is I want to tell you first from logic why it naturally follows that the Bible has authority, and then I'll show it in Scripture. Before I describe the logical argument, I want to give a little example about how logic works. Logic works like buttoning a shirt. You probably didn't expect me to say that. Karen and I were watching our grandkids a couple of weeks ago on the weekend, and so we were getting up on a Sunday morning to come to church. And Tiger, who's five, came up to me. He had this very sad look on his face. He had his shirt sort of half on, and he looked almost like he was going to cry. He came up to me and he said, Dada, he calls me Dada. He said, Dada, there's something wrong with my shirt. Two of the holes are missing. <laughs> of course, I took one look at him and knew exactly what had happened. And I said, they're missing. Someone stole them, didn't they? And Tiger said, I think so. But, of course, I knew exactly what had taken place. You could see it. He had sort of half of his shirt was bunched up underneath his chin. The other half was hanging down by his leg. And what had happened was he had taken the top button, and he had buttoned it on the third hole. And then he had carried forward on the down. And by the time he got to the bottom, of course, he ran out of button holes long before he ran out of buttons. And he came to the conclusion that someone had stolen his buttons. Buttonholes, rather. So... I told him, I said, well, we should start over. Unbutton your shirt, and let me show you how to do it properly. And I said, okay. So he unbuttons it, and I says, take that one and put it in that hole. So he took the top button, put it in the top button hole. I said, now just go down. One button hole, one button at a time, and he did. And, of course, everything was fine. That's a little bit how logic works. Tiger's problem was that he started with a false foundation. He had taken that top button. Instead of putting it in the top buttonhole, he put it in the third buttonhole. And so when he went to the second button, it went in the fourth buttonhole. When he went to the third button, it went in the fifth buttonhole. And when he went to the fourth button, he didn't have any buttonholes left. And he came to the incorrect conclusion, one that there was either something wrong with his shirt or that one of his brothers had stolen his buttonholes. And that's a little bit how logic works. Logic is like buttoning a shirt. If you get... First, get the foundations, the assumptions correct. Sometimes in logic, everything will follow naturally. But getting the underlying assumptions correct is important. If you get the underlying assumptions wrong, logic will eventually lead you to a false conclusion, much as it had led Tiger to the conclusion that his buttonholes were missing. Now, showing that Scripture has authority follows from two things, a simple logic and a proper understanding of who God is. So the logic goes something like this. Point number one, God holds the highest authority in the universe. Point number two, God communicates his authority in words. 
Point number three is that those words that God uses to communicate his authority is Scripture. Point four, therefore, Scripture has authority. So for many of you, that, that felt like a penny, uh, and, and you're going, yeah, that's very readily evident, John. For others of you, you're looking at me kind of going, what did he just say? So let me just run through that a little slower. God has ultimate authority in the universe. He has the power to command and control everything, right? No one can argue with that. Secondly, the way that God communicates his power and authority is through words. God speaks to us or spoke to us. And the way that he did that, Hebrews 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. How has God spoken to us? Well, he's spoken to us in Scripture. That's clear. And so God's communication to us in words is through Scripture, and therefore it follows naturally that Scripture has authority. So what kind of authority does Scripture have? Well, Scripture has the same kind of authority that God does because Scripture is simply the words of God, and therefore God's words have the same authority that God has. Like God, God's word, Scripture, has ultimate authority. It has the power to command and control our thoughts and our opinions and our behaviors. So, that's logic. Now, the logic is only good if you believe the premises. The logic only works if you believe that God holds the highest authority and that Scripture is the Word of God. If you don't think the Bible has ultimate authority, then you've got one of your buttons crossed. Either you don't believe that God has ultimate authority or you don't believe that the Bible, what we call Scripture, is the Word of God. So that's the logical argument. We can also see that Scripture has authority by looking at Scripture. So let's take the Old Testament first. The Old Testament Scripture has authority. And the reason I know that is because Jesus said so, and I believe Jesus. Jesus considered Old Testament Scripture to have authority. There are several examples of this in your Bibles. The best one is probably when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. You will remember the story. He encountered Satan. Satan tried to tempt him to do certain things. And what was Jesus' major defense? Jesus used Old Testament Scripture like a club on Satan's head. Matthew 4, 4 says this. He says, but he, this is Jesus speaking, speaking to Satan, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so with Satan, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy. In fact, he quoted Deuteronomy in this section of Scripture three times. He affirmed that the Old Testament Scripture is God's very words. And he used the authority of Old Testament Scripture against Satan to convince him that he wasn't going to do what Satan wanted to tempt him to do. And by doing so, Jesus very pointedly made the point that Old Testament Scripture indeed has authority. There's a second example. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And he told them, basically, that Old Testament Scripture had authority even over Jesus' own actions. 
We see that in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, where he says, he's speaking to his apostles. And he said, he said, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, this phrase here, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, those are the three divisions of the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is saying is that God's words uh, recorded in the Old Testament about Jesus himself must come true. Why? Because God has spoken and Scripture has authority and therefore Jesus' actions are governed by what God has said. Now, as for the New Testament, it has authority also. And the way to show that is to look at the writings mostly of Paul. Paul, as you know, wrote a good portion of the New Testament scriptures. Paul knew that the words that he wrote down were from God and therefore had authority. How do I know this? Well, he says so. 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul realized that even as he was penning this letter to the Corinthians, he had a command from God. He knew that God had spoken through him to deliver this message with authority to the Corinthian church. Early in this same letter, Paul gives some advice about marriage. Now, Paul uses a very odd phrase twice in this section of Scripture, and many people have been confused by what this means, but I'm going to read it for you. It, it, it actually means exactly the opposite of what some people think it means. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 12. He's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, To the married, that is, people who are married, I give this charge. He says, Not I, but the Lord. And there's that phrase I'm talking about, not I, but the Lord. I'll come back to that in just a second. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Then Paul writes, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not, he should not divorce her. Now, these two phrases, not I but the Lord and I not the Lord, have been misinterpreted to imply, misinterpreted to imply that Paul's words on marriage were not authoritative. In fact, just the opposite is true. What's Paul saying? First, he repeats the command that Jesus, not I but the Lord, stated in Matthew chapter 5 about marriage. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gave a discourse about marriage. They're asking him, is there any reason that a man and wife should be divorced? And Jesus gave them a good answer. And so Paul is simply saying here in, in, in verse 10, he's saying, not I, I'm not saying this, the Lord said this. I'm just quoting what Jesus said. Here's Jesus' instructions about your question, should we a man and wife be divorced? And then he has another question. He's obviously gotten from the Corinthian church. They asked him the question, what about a Christian man who's married to an unbelieving wife? What should he do? Paul recognized that Jesus never addressed this topic in his teaching. He hadn't seen it anywhere. Jesus didn't talk about it. It didn't come up. And so when he gets to this, Paul says, I'm going to give you some instructions about this. And so he says, so Paul says, I, not the Lord, that is me speaking, but not Jesus, I give you these instructions. So what is Paul really saying? What Paul is saying and what he's implying is that 
his instructions on this particular topic carry the same level of authority as Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Now, you say, well, that's a pretty bold thing to say. Why is he saying that? Is he saying that because he considers himself to be God? No, Paul never considers himself to be God. Paul realizes that his words are inspired by God, that God has breathed through him, and that the very commands that he gives the Corinthian church about marriage, about a guy being married to an unbelieving wife, has the same level of authority that Jesus does when he speaks about two married people. So Jesus confirmed and affirmed that the Old Testament has authority, and Paul himself affirmed that New Testament Scripture has authority. And finally... The Holy Spirit affirms that both the Old Testament and the New Testament has authority. The Holy Spirit affirms that. How does he do that? Well, when we read Scripture, the Holy Spirit will convict us that the words that we are reading are directly from God. Many of you have experienced this when you read your Bibles. The words have the authority of God and the power to command us to obey. Jesus said that that ability of the Holy Spirit to speak in and through the words of Scripture to you while you're reading it, it convince you and convict you that the words you're reading are true and have authority. Jesus said that's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, he's uh, getting, giving a discourse on the Holy Spirit who will come after Jesus ascends into heaven. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will guide us to understand the truth of Scripture and will convince us of the authority of Scripture when we read it. And so if you approach your Bible with an open heart, prayerfully, When you read it, the Holy Spirit will convince you and convict you that what you're reading has the authority of God himself. Paul told the Corinthian church that man cannot understand God's words without the help of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he makes this very statement. He says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Those who are spiritual are Christians, people who have trusted in Jesus as a personal Savior. And what Paul here is saying in the first part of that verse is the Holy Spirit is, is teaching and allowing you to understand spiritual truths. The second half of this uh, section of Scripture is talking about an unbeliever. He refers to him as the natural person. The natural person, Paul writes, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they, that is the words of Scripture, are spiritually discerned. They're not humanly discerned. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit teaches and interprets the words of Scripture for us. Unbelievers can't understand Scripture. Scripture is folly, this foolishness to unbelievers. Why? Mostly because the Holy Spirit is not there to help them interpret and understand the authority of Scripture. So the Holy Spirit convinces us that Scripture is true, and He convicts us with its authority. And that's why reading our Bibles changes us. Reading our Bibles changes us. Hebrews 4.12 says it very clearly. He says, For the Word of God is living and active. 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why Scripture is alive and active. That's why you, when you read it, you get sliced to the quick. Because it's like a very sharp sword that slices us when we read it. And that's the Holy Spirit working with authority. So, there we have it. Jesus confirmed the Old Testament has authority. Paul confirmed the New Testament has authority. And when you read it, the Holy Spirit will convict and convince you that the entire Bible has authority. God's Word, the Bible, has ultimate authority. Therefore, we should believe it and obey it. So, to disbelieve or to disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God Himself. I'm going to say that again. To disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God Himself. To disbelieve any word of Scripture is to disbelieve God and call Him a liar. And to disobey any word of Scripture is to disobey God Himself and declare, God is not my Lord. That's what the authority of Scripture says. The Bible has ultimate authority. It has the power to command what we think, what we feel, and what we do. Because Scripture is the very Word of God. Scripture is God speaking to us. Now, the second attribute we wanted to cover this morning is the idea that your Bible is sufficient. So what do we mean by this? Do we mean that God has told us everything He knows? Well, no, we know that's not true. That can't be true. Over the history of time, we can see that God reveals certain things to us, but He doesn't reveal everything. He reveals only what He wants to reveal to us at any point in history. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it's probably the clearest. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God the secret things, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so Deuteronomy tells us that God keeps some things hidden from us. God doesn't reveal everything to us, but He's revealed many things to us, but not everything. So it doesn't mean that. So what do we mean by sufficiency of Scripture? What do we mean when we say Scripture is sufficient? Do we mean that it's sufficient for everything? Do we mean that Scripture will answer every question we ever had? Well, let me ask you this. Does Scripture tell us how to change a tire or change a diaper? Does Scripture tell us whether the Cleveland Browns will win the Super Bowl this year? Does Scripture tell us the square root of 17? You would all answer no. So it's obvious by sufficiency of Scripture, we don't mean that the Bible tells, answers every single random question that we could ever come up with. But does Scripture tell us what happens when we sin? 
So tell us what kind of relationship God wants to have with us. Does it tell us whether we should have sex outside of marriage? Yes. Does Scripture tell us how to get to heaven, how we should interact with non-Christians, and whether we should cheat on our income tax return? Yes. So, Scripture is sufficient means that it tells us all God wants us to know in three important areas. Scripture tells us everything that God wants to know, God wants us to know in three important areas. Salvation, living the Christian life, and obeying God's rules. So, let me just run through those one at a time and demonstrate where they come from. Scripture is sufficient for salvation. Scripture contains the entire revelation of everything God wants to communicate to us about how to be saved. The entire message of the gospel is contained in our Bibles. The gospel is very simple. It's four points, right? We've all sinned. Therefore, we can't go to heaven. Because God is a holy God and he can't have anything to do with sin. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins. The conclusion is that we trust in Jesus, we can be saved. That's the gospel message. I can't make it much simpler than that. But that entire message, everything we need to know about salvation, is in our Bibles. We see that from 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and are firmly believed, knowing, that f- knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is Scripture, which are able to make you what? They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter says essentially the same thing in 1 Peter one twenty three. He says, since... You have been born again. That word born again means saved. He says, since you have been saved, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Both of these verses show that salvation, the whole salvation story, and everything God wanted to communicate to us about salvation is already in our scripture. Secondly, scripture is sufficient for living the Christian life. Scripture contains all God wants us to know about living a good and godly Christian life. Paul writes to Timothy that Scripture is useful for many things and that it equips us for every good work. We looked at this verse last week. It's 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Well, Paul writes to Timothy, he said, All Scripture is breathed out by God. There's that verse again we talked about last week. What else? All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Not for many good works, not for some good works, but for every good work. And so Scripture is sufficient for living the Christian life. Thirdly, we said the Scripture is sufficient for obeying God's rules. Scripture tells us all about God's moral commands. If we want to obey God perfectly, what are we told to do? Well, we're told to go look in our Scriptures and obey what it says. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Skipping down to verse 9, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. In order to walk in the way that the Lord wants us to walk, we must read and understand Scripture. And Scripture is sufficient for us to know all the rules that God wants us to follow. So, 
Why is it important that the Bible is sufficient? That it contains everything that God wants us to know about salvation, about living the Christian life, and about obeying God's moral laws. Why is that important? Well, I think there's three important reasons why it's important. At least three. The first one is that in our quest, if we have such a quest, to find out what God requires of us, we don't have to go very far. We can pick up our Bibles and feel confident that everything that God wants us to know about those things is right there. So we don't have to go to a thousand different places and search all around the world to try to find all the things that God wants us to do. It's kind of a one-stop shop. Look in your Bibles. It's going to tell you what you need to know. We don't have to chase after the writings of Muhammad or the writings of a Buddhist or, or Mahatma Gandhi or uh, Dalai Lama or any of these other people. We don't have to go and search around those things. We don't have to consult the most popular guru of the day. God has already revealed to us all that he wants us to know about salvation, about living the Christian life, and about obeying his moral laws. So, for example, we can search our Bibles and we can find out everything that God has said in the Bible about marriage, about how to be a good husband and a good wife. We can feel confident that everything that God wanted to communicate to us about marriage is already here in our Bibles. Now, there are dozens of good books out there written by other men on marriage. And they might be helpful, but everything that God wanted to tell us about marriage is already in our Bibles. So those other books are perhaps useful, but not necessary. Secondly, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that men should never add anything to Scripture, and no teachings of men have the same authority as our Bibles. Now, you may say, well, that's relatively obvious, John, but I can tell you that every major cult in this world violates that command, violates that principle, and many major denominations today violate it too. Third thing is that nothing is sin if it is not specifically, explicitly, or implicitly forbidden in Scripture. And similarly, nothing is required of us that is not either explicitly or implicitly required by Scripture. And so where the Bible is silent on an issue, we know that we have some freedom. And so if someone tells you to go do something, or someone walks up to you and says, you can't do that, ask them. Show me in Scripture where it's either explicitly or implicitly either required or prohibited, and we'll have a discussion about that. So the Bible is sufficient contains everything we need to know from God about salvation, about living the Christian life, and about following God's moral laws. So that brings us to the end of our two-part mini-series. Scripture is inspired by God. It's inerrant, it's authoritative, and it's sufficient. And so the question is, why did we do this? Why did we spend two weeks showing that Scripture is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient? And the answer is, Because if the Bible is all those things, if it is inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient, then we can depend upon it, we can trust it, we can read it, and we can rely on it to help us, to guide us, to help us make decisions both big and small. It helps making our decision-making simpler and more intentional. 
And we can confidently apply the principles we find in Scripture to every area of our lives, whether it's marriage or parenting or working or going on vacation or handling our money. Every aspect of our life can be governed by Scripture, which is inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient. And over the next several weeks, beginning next week, we're going to do a series called Think Big, during which we're going to examine what the Bible tells us about how to make major and minor decisions in every area of life. And with this as the solid foundation to that, we can go confidently to our scriptures to find those things. Now, those of you who came in this morning probably saw the sign, one of those big green signs, those relatively new, don't they look nice? Can't miss them. Driving down Main Street, three blocks away, you can see the one on the side of the building at night. It's fantastic. It glows in the dark. It says on it, Tomball what? Bible Church, right? Tomball Bible Church. And I recognize that standing here in front of you, most of you come to this church because we hold the Bible in high regard. And so it may seem relatively superfluous to stand up to a audience like this and describe that our Bibles are inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient. I think most of us already believe that. Sometimes it's good to get a reminder not only of why we believe it and how we can show it. And so I hope that was useful to you this morning, but I have a feeling that many of you already believe that. But I have a feeling that the problem that many of us have isn't so much about the inspiration and inerrancy and authoritative and sufficiency of Scripture, it has to do with the fact that we don't know what our Bibles say. And why would that be? It might be because we don't read it. Now, I have a question for you, but I do not want you to raise your hand. So if you're one of those kind of people that can't control your hand going up, sit on them now. Don't raise your hand. But how many in here, don't raise your hand, have never read the Bible from cover to cover? Every chapter in the Bible. I see some of you squirming. You're sitting down really hard on your hands now. That's fine. I don't mean to embarrass you. But if you call yourself a Bible-believing Christian and you haven't read every section of Scripture, if you haven't read your Bible cover to cover, there's something wrong with that, isn't there? You're not alone. According to George Barna, who does research on churches and Christians, among adult Americans who call themselves Bible-believing Christians, okay? So this isn't, this isn't somebody who who thinks there's something they're not. They self-report. They say, are you a Bible-believing Christian? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Of those people who claim themselves to be Bible-believing Christians, adults now, not children, excluding Sunday morning, like now, excluding Sunday morning, less than 15% of them will read their Bible once a week. That's less than one in six people will read their Bible once a week. And 35% of them Never read the Bible at all. One out of three people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians never read their Bible at all. I would like to think that everyone sitting in here doesn't fit in that category, but I have a feeling that's not the case. In fact, I'm sure of it. Last week, Carl got up here and he challenged us to make a commitment to read the Bible to make it a central part of our lives. I try to think of an application for this section of Scripture, and I believe that Carl hit a nail on the head, and so there's no reason for me to raise a hammer and hit another nail. I'm going to pile on to Carl's 
challenge from last week. And I'm going to double down on that challenge. I'm going to challenge everyone in this room today to commit to read your entire Bible cover to cover in 12 months. Now, it's not that hard. Let me do the math, okay? Does anybody here know how many words are in the Bible? Anybody? Would anybody like to take a guess? I'll give you $20 if you get it right. There are 757,000 words in the ESV, English uh, Standard Version, plus or minus 100, 750,000 words. The average person reads about 250 words a minute. Start tomorrow, read Monday through Friday, take the weekend off, because it's the weekend. I'm not trying to make this too difficult. Take the weekend off. Read 12 minutes a day, and in 12 months, you'll have the entire Bible read. 12 minutes a day. Anybody would have thought it was 12 minutes a day? You always sit and you're thinking, I'm going to go through the Bible front to back in a year. I'm going to be sitting there reading all day long. No, 12 minutes. That's about how, as long as it takes you to get through four corners here in Tumble. <laughs> now, I know that sounds like a challenge, but frankly, it's not a challenge. It's a gift. It's not burdensome, and it's not unpleasant. It's a gift. And let me tell you why. If you accept this as a gift, you will get two things, two good things. One, you'll get joy, and two, you'll get change. Joy, because to spend 12 minutes a day, five days a week, to listen to the voice of God speaking to you will be a joy. There will be moments when you feel like a burden, but it will be joy. Change. When you read the Bible, the Bible will change you. Why? We talked about this already. Because God, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, will change you. God has decreed that His Word will have its way in our lives like rain on earth causes plants to grow. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says this so clearly, you can't ignore it. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. It goes back to this idea that the word of God is like a sword, alive and active. And it will have an effect on you. You will be changed. And when you finish reading, cover to cover, you will be a different person than when you started. I have experienced this myself. Cover to cover, in a year, you will be a different person 12 months from now than when you started. And that is what makes it a gift. It's not really a challenge. So come back next week. Start your Bible reading tomorrow. Come back next week and we'll talk about Think Big, where we take Scripture, the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of Scripture, and figure out how to apply the key principles to all areas of our lives, big and small, because our Bibles 
are inspired, they're inerrant, they're authoritative, and they are sufficient. They are the very word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I am personally thankful for your word. It is alive and active, and every time I read it, it cuts me to ribbons. I thank you for the Holy Spirit, who, when we read your word with an expectant heart, will come alongside us and help to interpret it for us, help to explain it to us, help us understand it, clear our hearts and our minds, and allow your word to work in us and to change us into the people of God you want us to be. I thank you that when we sit down to read your word, Lord God, it changes us from the inside out. And so I thank you for it. I thank you that you stooped down to this earth and used human language to speak to us. I'm thankful that it's in written form so we don't have to wonder about what it says and try to remember. We can just open it up and read it. I'm thankful, Lord God, that you speak to us through your word. And pray that as we start this series next week, I'll think big that we would each take seriously your command to make it authoritative in our lives, to allow it to have the power to command us and compel us to the way we think, to what we believe, and to what we do. And we pray all these things in the powerful and precious name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.